You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Time for the Naked Scientist taking your calls with all your science related questions. 011 8830702. Use the SMS line 31702. Tweet at M at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons or the WhatsApp line 0727021702. Doctor, I have missed you. It has been far too long. <laughs> I have to have a holiday sometime. I haven't had one for a couple of years. So I thought oh, really? I owe it to myself. Uh, yeah, I've just been too busy. And, I uh, so we decided, right, we, we must have a holiday. And so we, we went off to the west of England, to the county Cornwall, where there are beautiful beaches, crystal clear water, and uh, great food and good company, because I was there, of course. Uh, yeah, I had a really good, really good week off. I'm sorry uh, we missed each other, but I'm back now. There we go. Listen, it was a well-deserved holiday, I think, and I hope you had a good time and a great rest. So let's jump straight into the questions. We've got one that says, Hi, Lebukhile, please ask the doctor if ADHD is genetic and how is it that adults are diagnosed? Yes, interesting questions. ADHD affects about 5% of adults and about 5% of kids. But the 5% of kids don't turn into 5% of adults. There are some people who get this when they're very small and they then, for want of a better phrase, grow out of it. There are some adults that are diagnosed later, but they didn't necessarily have it when they were little. Now, it may well be that they had a tendency towards it. The diagnosis just wasn't made. In other cases, there are changes in, in a person's behavior uh, and their, their, their sort of psychology that means that they then do attract the diagnosis later. Now, like all these things, there's probably a mixture of answers to this question. There may well be a family history, and and it may well be that there are some genes which are associated with a tendency towards developing these sorts of situations and these sorts of diagnoses. But what one must be cautious about is muddling up a an environmental co-occurrence or coincidence with a genetic cause for something. Mm. For example, let's say we're talking about, uh, say, people's body weight. It may well be that if you have kids who are overweight and you yourself are overweight, you could say, well, there must be a genetic cause for that. But mm. actually, it's dietary, let's say. If the parents are eating the same as the kids, then unsurprisingly, if the parents are overweight, the kid's going to be overweight. So it may well be that some elements of this are environmental. We regard ADHD, which for anyone who's not familiar with what this is, it's Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. This is a, a formal diagnosis which is characterized by individuals who seem to have enormous amounts of energy they're very impulsive they they really struggle to focus for long periods of time at one job in hand they get bored easily they're up and about wanting to do different things now some people say well that's just normal and uh, and we're just seeing an extreme form of that normality others say that this is this is not normal because it's destructive and disruptive for, for those individuals and those around them now behavior is a product of our genes because our genes control how our brain develops and our brain development and brain structure then in turn dictate how we behave so to an extent there are almost certainly genes which may load the dice and make it more likely that a person will develop certain manifestation but and we know that certain major psychoses risk of depression for example schizophrenia also bipolar disorder these things are are definitely familial 
ADHD, I don't think we know exactly whether or not there is a strong genetic link yet. I think people are looking at this. I think there are some genes that may bias the equation, but I don't think you can say that's the gene, that's the ADHD gene, and if you've got that, you'll get ADHD. I think they may bias your likelihood of developing the mm. condition, but I don't think that, that in every case you're going to be able to point to a gene or, or cluster of genes and say that causes this condition. So I think there's a range of different factors going on, and certainly the environment development and how your brain puts itself together which are not necessarily genetic there's a strong element of random chance in there too they all make a difference mm-hmm. all right let's go to the lines we have Debocho in benoni hi Debocho. hi hi how are you good thanks and you good um the question that i have for dr chris is what extent does cloud seeding actually contribute to climate change because this engineering process actually deliberately manipulates the Yeah, this is a very important point. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, and and you're probably thinking about this because there were headlines today that China are embarking on an aggressive pattern of of cloud and rain forcing because they are seeing their harvests in jeopardy. The rice crop is facing ruin and they've got lots of hungry mouths to feed and so their solution is to make up for the shortfall by forcing the weather. First of all, how do you actually do this? This is not new technology. It's been known about for a really long time that you can do this. And the the evidence we have is that China did this before the Beijing World uh, Olympics, for example, because they made sure that the weather was as good as it could be before the and during the Olympics by doing exactly the same thing. You make rain occur elsewhere, and then there's no rain left to be dropped downwind. So let's just back up slightly. How does this work? When we leave nature to its own devices, what happens is that water is evaporated from certain parts of the world's surface, most of it coming from the ocean, because each square kilometre of the Earth's surface and ocean surface is being irradiated, warmed by the sun at the rate of about a kilowatt. So you're evaporating water from where there's a lot of water. It goes up into the atmosphere as water vapour, which are individual water molecules separated in space. As you rise through the atmosphere air expands because the pressure is dropping and if air is expanding it's doing work which means its temperature is dropping as the temperature of the air falls the molecules come closer together and they spend more time close together and eventually they will link up and they form small droplets and over time small droplets make bigger droplets and eventually they get so big that they come down as rain and that is the hydrological cycle what you can do to encourage that process is you can put small particles up into the atmosphere and because molecules like other surfaces to stick onto this is called nucleation where there's already a surface around which other things can join together you if you put that surface there can encourage the droplets to form sooner in in greater abundance than they otherwise would and therefore they're going to rain sooner than they otherwise would. And there are various chemicals that will do this. One that's been used is a chemical called silver iodide. And you fire this up in into the atmosphere and um, distribute it and across a broad swathe of atmosphere and these tiny particles then attract water and form droplets and they will cause rain. But your question is, well, what's the consequences downwind of doing that? And I alluded to this at the beginning when I said, well, they made sure the weather was good, allegedly, for the Beijing Olympics by making it rain upwind of Beijing. Well, if you make it rain upwind, then there's less rain downwind. So you have robbed areas downwind of the rain that would have fallen there by making it rain 
elsewhere because there's only so much water in the atmosphere over a certain geography. So there certainly will be consequences and, and people obviously are going to be very concerned about this because we may, as we enter into an era of people combating uh, each other, not over oil, not over energy, but over water, which is a very real risk in future, we may well see countries doing this sort of thing and other neighbouring countries downwind of them would argue, you've stolen my water, you've stolen my rain. We'll just have to wait and see politically how that one plays out, but it's certainly a risk. All right, thank you so much, Debo in Benoni, for that question. When we come back, we take more of your questions for Dr. Chris Smith, 011-883-0702, and the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. 702. The Naked Scientist. 11 minutes uh, up until 3 o'clock, and we are taking all of your questions for Dr. Chris Smith that are science related. 011 and the WhatsApp line 072 Let us check out the WhatsApp voice notes. Hi, Rilebuhide. This is Pindile from Pretoria. Can you please ask the doctor? How does it happen that old or adults people um, get jaundice and why does the eyes become yellow and if these patients do they survive the jaundice? Thank you so much for that question. I'm sure many of us think jaundice is actually just in, in, in babies, doctor. Hello. Yeah. Well, the answer is, first of all, what is jaundice? Jaundice is the accumulation in our tissues of a chemical called bilirubin. Bilirubin is made when you break down hemoglobin, which is the chemical which is inside your red blood cells. And the heme, which is the iron-containing bit of hemoglobin, gets broken open by your metabolism and made into a form that can be safely excreted by your liver and your liver chucks it away into your intestines, and your intestines then chuck it away down the toilet. But if something goes wrong with your liver, and your liver cannot either pick up the stuff from the blood to chuck it out, or your liver is injured so that having made some bilirubin, the stuff comes back out of the liver and then goes into the bloodstream, it ultimately ends up in your tissues. And because the molecule itself is quite fat-soluble, it will go into the parts of the body that have lots of fat in them. Your skin has lots of fat in it. The whites of your eyes have fat in them. But also the whites of your eyes are where you've got uh, an opportunity to see the yellow colour because yellow or a colour on top of white is very visible. So it tends to manifest where you've got either pale skin, nails or, or eye whites. Now the reason that this can happen is either because your liver is not picking up and processing enough of the bilirubin in your bloodstream already and that can happen because of liver failure and that can happen because it's either something has damaged the liver in the short term or something has damaged the liver in the long term. It can also happen because something is obstructing the ability of the liver to throw out the, bili, the bilirubin into your intestines. So if you've got say a stone, a liver gallstone which has blocked the duct that would normally tip this out into your intestines in your bile that will also cause a backlog a ba and a backup and it will spill over back into the bloodstream so very often the cause is reversible 
and very often if a person gets jaundice we can diagnose it we can find out what the reason is that it's happening and most of the time these things can be dealt with and treated there are some reasons why it will not be treatable there are some cancers for example that will cause this to happen there will be some people who have very bad liver damage because of for instance alcohol use and they've got cirrhosis and an alcoholic cirrhosis and liver failure is very hard to reverse you can really only treat that with a, a liver transplant but under that under most circumstances if it's say a, an infection like hepatitis a or b or c which acutely can make this happen they will get better and go away and when you've recovered from those then your liver function should recover and you should get better again all right another voice note Hello, this is Jordan. I would like to ask the the sign the doctor. It's currently how many dimensions do we have in the quantum realm? The last time I heard it was eleven, but I don't know if that has progressed or regressed in the quantum theory and quantum mechanics. Thank you. Hi, Jordan. I think it's still 11. Uh, I believe that was how many that um, Stephen Hawking was talking about in his book. And that was the point at which my ability to stay with him in his narrative completely failed me. Uh, I do not have a brain that's capable of comprehending all these multiple dimensions. But yes, I mean, th there are a number of different theories. One has to emphasize that this is all theoretical about how our universe works. There are lots of different theories there are lots of different models for how the universe and physics and how space and time are all wound and bound up together and connected we have a range of different theories and it's up to us to now go out there and test them and that's what scientists are doing all the time they come up with a hypothesis about how things might work and then they design experiments to either prove or disprove that hypothesis and uh, when it comes to 11 dimensional space it's pretty hard to prove or disprove but we're slowly chipping away at it all right, uh, there's, there are more of uh, the questions that are coming through on the WhatsApp line, 0727021702. One says, hi, sir, I have a question. I have skin tags on my face. What can I use to remove it that will not be harsh on my face? And doctor, maybe you can help us understand what she means by skin tags. Uh, they're quite common, and they're little tiny growths on the skin. You get a almost like a... a, a blob or bump of skin on a thin strip of tissue hanging it onto you so it's not like you've got one big uh, finger of material projecting out of your skin you have a, a bulbous end with a little tiny sort of stem it's hanging on these can be very safely removed but you shouldn't do this yourself you should be careful because particularly some skin types can scar quite badly and develop an overgrowth of skin in the aftermath of, of injury called a keloid so you should be very careful and black skin is more vulnerable to that happening so the best thing to do is if they are a cosmetic problem for you and they're no harm to you whatsoever other than than that they can be a cosmetic problem for some people the best thing to do is to see a doctor see someone who will do minor surgeries and they can be very safely very easily removed and and almost painlessly too and that's the best thing get get a professional onto those especially when it concerns the face because if things go wrong through diy manipulations then the the consequences can be even worse than the original problem yeah all right another voice note Good afternoon, Naked Sandys. Stan from Albert. I just want to ask you why I feel hungry immediately after I finish feeding because I feed through the tube, though. Uh, but immediately after, uh, uh, when I'm feeding, I feel full, but immediately I just take a walk. I got to feel hungry again immediately. Thanks.
Doctor, I hope you got that question clearly. I think I was a bit confused about the feeding through a tube. But did that question mm. make sense to you? Um, I, I don't know if uh, what's being referred to here is feeding through a tube threaded into the intestines or through a tube which is into the bloodstream because both ways can be used to get calories into the body. Mm. When we eat food, we're basically digested up into a form that can then be absorbed through our intestines and then it's pushed into the bloodstream. But if you can't swallow normally, then sometimes you can put food in a mulched up state downstream of whatever mm. the blockage is directly into the intestine and then they do their job of putting it into the bloodstream but if your intestines don't work properly you can go one step further and have a special tube put into a blood vessel and then you can put a special form of the food which is capable of being put into the bloodstream and it goes around in the bloodstream and then tissues can see it as though it had come in from your intestines now in terms of, of how hunger works we have a whole raft of different mechanisms going on here. When you see food, you immediately feel hungry and it makes you uh, produce various digestive factors. It makes you prepare to take on board energy. And that means you, you prepare psychologically, but you also prepare all your tissues in terms of what their metabolism is doing, what uh, different organs are doing in terms of secreting various chemicals and adjusting their biochemistry to be ready to receive calories. The physical taking in of food also reinforces those processes and then you begin to feed yourself as, as the food goes through your intestines you get a trickle of food into your bloodstream and the calories go in the sugar level goes up and at the same time you then secrete various hormones to control the sugar that's coming in and you feel full and this is there as an anticipatory thing to stop you overeating. So you feel hungry, you start to eat, and you immediately mm. begin to feel better, even before any calories have got into your bloodstream, because that way you're, you're stopping that process before it gets like a runaway train. Now, why this person should immediately begin to feel hungry again, I suspect that what they're doing is getting a really big surge of calories going in, because when you feed through a tube, you are pushing the calories in quite quickly. They may all be being absorbed quite rapidly, and this could be producing quite a big spike in the hormone insulin, and insulin takes calories and packs them away as body fat, but it does lower your blood sugar in the process. And it could be that this person is getting a, a spike in sugar and then a very big drop in sugar. And that may be why they then feel hungry, because when we have low blood sugar, it triggers a hunger sensation. That's just my speculation. And if that is causing a problem, they ought, ought, definitely ought, ought to go and see the physician or whoever's looking after them to make sure that they're being uh, getting calories at the right rate and with the right composition in what they're eating. Thank you so much, as always, Dr. Chris Smith for The Naked Scientist.